Hello, I'm Sam Amon, your non-binary host, and this is the 45th episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today we'll be discussing about two literary giants and Jadid reformers, Chopin and Abdullah Qadiri. making history segment, and we have to talk about the midterms. Control for the House is still up for grabs, although it's likely it will go red, but only by a few seats, and, we, and we've kept the Senate. We won't know if we'll have 50 or 51 seats until the Georgia runoff on December 6th. No matter how the House goes, this has been a historic moment for the Democrats. Usually an incumbent party can expect to lose about 20 to 40 House seats and 4 to 6 Senate seats, but this year Biden retained the Senate and is only going to lose the House by maybe 6 to 10 seats. Obviously, I'd love to keep the House, uh, but even if we lose the House by a teeny margin, this election went 10 times better than I thought. I don't believe the Republicans are going to do any soul-searching, and while McCarthy will have his hands full with a house full of moderate Republicans and MAGA fascists, we all know he's a walking wet napkin and will crumble at MAGA pressure. So we have a rough two years ahead of us, but before I go into what still needs to be done, I want to highlight the many amazing victories we had this cycle. First, the Democrats prevented a supermajority in North Carolina, state Congress, leaving their governor's veto intact which means he can veto any extreme abortion bills that the MAGA fascists try to pass. In Illinois, J.B. Pritzker, Kwame Rowell, Lauren Underwood, and Tammy Duckworth all won re-election. And we had a couple of additional um, first-time victories, such as Nikki Budzinski, who won House Rep in District 13, which was formerly a Republican district, Nabila Saeed, a Muslim Indian American who will be the youngest member of the Illinois General Assembly, so I'm very happy about my state, and that we'll still be friendly to abortion rights and LGBTQ rights. Also, Illinois is the first state to amend their state constitution to allow workers to organize and bargain collectively, and three of our districts voted specifically to pay for the expansion of health me- mental health services, which is part of treatment, not trauma. D.C. voted to phase out tipping and increase the minimum wage for tipped employees for the second time. New Hampshire State Rep. James Rosner is the first trans man to win election to a state legislature in U.S. history. And Leah Finke is going to be Minnesota's first transgender legislator. And Elisa Polaski is Minnesota's first non-binary state rep. Montana also has their first trans person, Zoe Ziffer. Vermont, Michigan, and California are the first states to codify Roe in their state constitutions. What are we waiting for, Illinois? And Kentucky and Montana voted against an initiative that would have prevented people from getting abortion. So abortions was a big winner this election cycle. Vermont, Oregon, Alabama, and Tennessee voted against slavery in their states, and they're the only states to do so. For those who don't know, slavery wasn't completely outlawed in the United States. There's still a caveat in our very own constitution, and in most state constitutions, that says slavery is fine if you're a prisoner. You should read Eli Meistel's Allow Me to Retort, for more information. Nebraska voted to increase their minimum wage and make sure it kept up with inflation. On the immigration side, the racist sheriff in, Camp, in Cape Cod was defeated by Donna Buckley, who swore to rip up the 287G agreement in the county of Barnstable. 
For those who don't know, the 287G agreements allow ICE to deputize local police as ICE officers, allowing cops to arrest and deport immigrants. It spans the reach of ICE, and it spans cops' responsibilities without any oversight or training. People of Barnstable now need to pressure their new sheriff to keep her word and end the 287G contracts in New England. John Fetterman defeated that ableist quack of a doctor, Mehmed Oz. Gretchen Whitmer and Tony Evans won their election in Michigan and Wisconsin. And speaking of Michigan, they won a trifecta in their state governments. They won the governorship and both state-level congressional bodies since the 80s. So they have not won all three bodies since like the 1980s, which is 40 years ago, if you want to feel really old. Georgia erected Roa Rahman to their house. She's the first Muslim and Palestinian to hold public office in the state. Jamie Johnson is the first black woman elected to Missouri state legislature, and Wes Moore is the third black man to ever be elected governor in the United States. And those are just the victories I was able to keep track of. We had some major disappointments as well, Florida and Texas, and the gerrymandering mess that is New York right now. But the biggest takeaway from this election cycle is, one, young people are going to vote in progressive candidates who will protect abortion rights, will support loan, student loan forgiveness, and will fight for solutions to climate change. Two, abortion rights are the moment. Every single state that had an abortion initiative on the ballot voted to protect abortion rights, even states like Kentucky and Montana. North Carolina prevented a supermajority that would have jeopardized abortion rights. Democrats need to get their act together in the next legislative session and codify Roe versus Wade. And Biden's already saying he doesn't have the votes because he doesn't know how, house is going to go, how the House is going to go. Screw that. You call, we need to call our Democrats and tell them, no, you fight anyway, which is why we are voting you in. You fight and you force Republicans to vote against it. Because I bet, I bet there are Republicans in very um, fragile situations because they're, they just turned a blue district or their state, like Kentucky, decided to still protect abortion rights and they're not going to want to anger their voters. So we need to call the Democrats and tell them, no, we voted on the abortion issue. The abortion issue is important to us. You need to actually protect our rights as human beings. I mean, at least try. Try, Joe. Even if you don't have the votes, fight for us, please. Um, and the third takeaway, and something that we've all known and we just ignore, is that gerrymandering is going to kill this country. Georgia, Florida, and Texas are perfect examples of how gerrymandering is suppressing people's rights to vote and literally killing them. Do you think Abbott is going to address the Texas grid this winter? Do you think he's going to stop shipping immigrants to God knows where? Do you think DeSantis is going to stop his war on trans people? The incompetence of these fascists has killed people in the past, and they will continue to to do so. And the Republicans are rigging the elections in the states so that they can never lose. The Biden administration needs to restore the Voting Rights Act, which leads us to what happens next. First, Georgia. Don't listen to anyone. We still need Georgia. First off, the people of Georgia need Raphael Warnock, right? They don't need Herschel Walker. Second, we could barely get things passed when the Democrats controlled the House and the Senate was 50-50. Why handicap ourselves again if we're going to lose the House by a few seats and the Senate is still 50-50? We need to pour money and energy into the Georgia runoff. If you can, donate to the Warnock campaign. If you're in the area, volunteer to canvas for Georgia. If you're not in the area, still fill out his volunteer form. He may have phone banking and text banking opportunities for us. Second, we need to hold our officials accountable. As I mentioned above, a lot of these candidates who just won made a lot of promises when they ran. 
Some we can't contact yet because they haven't been sworn in, but the current conference is entering what is traditionally known as the lame duck session. This is the final legislative session between the election and inauguration. Traditionally, nothing happens, but this year we're going to call all of our reps and make sure they pass as many bills as they can before the next session. Indivisible has an action plan, which we'll link to in the description, but the bottom line is, one, Indivisible says that they need to lift the debt ceiling through reconciliation, the Republican House can't hold us hostage and force Democrats to cave on some of their extreme plans. Two, now the time is to put bills, to put forward bills how a Republican House would never touch with a 10-foot pole to the floor. This includes Respect for Marriage Act, Reforms to the Electoral Accounts Act, the Afghan Adjustment Act, and the Equal Act, among others. I would say just maybe throw in Roe as well, because you have the House votes. And then maybe the Senate doesn't hold a vote on it till, till the next session. I think, I think they're allowed to do that. If we call now, instead of waiting, we'll prove to the Democrats that we showed up, up at the polls because we expect them to do their job and use every opportunity to fight for us. We voted in ways that broke expectations because we're tired of the status quo. The Democrats have to also give up on the status quo and fight for us like our lives and democracy depend upon it because it does. Taking a break from the federal elections, um, if you're in Chicago, our municipal elections are coming up in February. If you're in the 48th Ward, one of my friends, Lenny Mana Hoppenworth, is running for the alder position in the 48th Ward. She's a queer, small business owner and progressive leader who's led the Indivisible Movement in the 48th Ward as well as on the state level for the past, what is it, five years now since Trump was elected? Uh, she's been organizing since that fascist Trump was elected, and now she's fighting to represent the 48th Ward. I appreciate it if you could donate to her campaign. We'll provide the link in the description, and if you're in the area, to volunteer to canvas for her. Uh, finally, taking a slight detour from American politics, I want to celebrate the beginning of the liberation of the Ukrainian city of uh, Kherson. I'm so happy and relieved, and I pray the Russian army keeps retreating and this war can end soon, with Ukraine in a strong position and confident it will no longer be threatened by its neighbors. And on that note, which is kind of a fitting note, it's time to discuss about two renowned writers and important Jadids, Chopin and Abdullah Kudiri. If you didn't listen to our podcast episode on Abdullah Fit Chat, you may be wondering why a podcast about asymmetrical warfare is talking about two writers. There's the personal reason, and then there's the quote-unquote academic reason. On the personal side, Abdullah Fit Chat, Chopin, and Abdullah Khodiri are why I became interested in Central Asian history, particularly during the Russian Civil War and the Sovietization of the Central Asian states in the first place. So this episode is a chance for me to highlight these fascinating people, who not only inspired the podcast, but also had a huge effect on the region. Academically, Chopin, Kodiri, and Fitchat were key members of the Dadid movement who shaped the cultural landscape of Turkestan during the Civil War. They are representative of the people the Soviets eventually found threatening as they tried to solidify their own hold on the region. If you've listened to my other episodes, you know that I don't believe you can approach any type of warfare only from the military side. War is obviously has a military component to it, but also has a political and a cultural and an economic component to it. And so talking about Chotan and Kodiri and Fitchat allows us to understand the cultural and political context of the region during the Russian Civil War. Part 1. Chopin. Chopin, also known as Abduhamid Suleiman Odli Yunusov, is considered to be one of the great Uzbek poets of the 20th century. He fundamentally reshaped poetry while also working as a playwright, novelist, translator, and, and social reformer. 
He was born in Audijon to a wealthy merchant in the 1890s and started his education in a Russian school. His father wanted him to attend a madrasa and he ran away to Tashkent where he tried to make it as a writer. While in Tashkent, he became involved in editing and writing for Jadid journals and became involved in their intellectual and literary circles. He was close both to Mohammed Joja Beboudi, who was murdered by the Bukharan Amir during the Russian Civil War, and Abdullah Fitrak, who became his mentor, pushed him to focus on poetry, and gave him his pen name, Chopin, which translates to Morning Star. Part 1a. The Russian Civil War. When the Russian Revolution occurred, there were mixed reactions within the Jadids. Fitchat would write, it was just one more calamity to afflict the Russians, but Chopin wrote a poem called The Red Banner, celebrating the revolution. This excerpt I'm about to read was translated by Christopher Fort and included in, in his introduction to the novel Night, which he also translated, and you, you can buy at most bookstores. Red Banner, there, look how it waves in the wind, as if the Quibla wind is greeting it. It is not glad to see the poor in this state, for the poor man has the right, because it is his. Has the red blood of the poor not flown like rivers to take the banner from the darkness into the light? Are there no workers left in Siberian exile to take the banner to the oppressed and weak people? You bourgeoisie conceited upper classes don't approach the red banner. Were you not its blood-sucking enemy? Now the black will not approach those white rays of light. Now those black forces' time has passed. Chopin was involved in the creation of the Khan autonomy and even wrote a poem to celebrate its creation and mourned its destruction by the Tashkent Soviet. When the Bolsheviks entered the region, the Jadids welcomed them because they had no one else to support their work. The Jadids had always been a minority in the region and remained powerless and isolated as Turkestan succumbed to civil war. Working with the Bolsheviks, the Jadid helped overthrow the emirs, the Russian settlers, and the Basmachi. For his part, Chopin lived a wandering life after the fall of the Kokan autonomy, apparently working at a theater briefly. But he still mourned the devastation the wars impacted on Turkestan, publishing a poem to the despoiled land. The excerpt I'm about to read is from Abdi Khalib's book, Making Uzbekistan. Quote, O mighty land whose mountains salute the sky, why are there dark clouds over your head? Your beautiful green pastures have been trampled, they have no cattle, no horses. Which gallows have the shepherds been hanged from? Why, instead of neighing and bleeding, there are only mournful cries? Why is this? Where are the beautiful girls, the youthful brides? Is there no answer from heaven, or earth, or from the despoiled land? Why is the poisoned arrow of the plundered, heavy crown still in your breast. Why don't you have the iron revenge that once destroyed your enemies? O free land that has never put up with slavery, why does a shadow lie throttling you? As we can tell from this poem, Chopin was deeply affected by the destruction that was unleashed in the region. I don't think anyone can blame him, for, as we have mentioned many times in this podcast, the destruction was devastating and afflicted the indigenous populations the hardest. However, the Soviets would use these poems and this quote-unquote anti-Bolshevik sentiment against Chopin in the 30s when Stalin's purge sought to break the Central Asian intelligentsia. Part 1b. Crafting a Literary and Cultural Legacy Chopin returned to Bukhara in 1920 after Fitchat offered him a job to work at the main newspaper of the People's Soviet Republic of Bukhara. Chopin, like Fitchat, was heavily involved in crafting a Turkic-specific identity for Turkestan, no longer writing in Persian, but in a Turkic language 
crafted by Fitchrat, and we talked about Fitchrat's efforts to recreate the language and recreate the identity of what was now Uzbekistan in our last episode. Chopin introduced the Turkic leader to local poetry. He was a main contributor to the anthology Yun Uzbek Poets, and produced three collections of his own poems. He also translated several works in Persian and Russian and introduced many Uzbeks to Shakespeare, Chekhov, and Gogol. He was a big supporter of rejuvenating the theater scene in Kashkent and wrote many plays. As the horrors of the war passed and the region entered the new decade, Chopin and many Jadid saw the 1920s as a chance to rebuild. Chopin believed that the revolution and civil war had created the conditions needed for the Uzbek state to take its place in the world. The famous Pobedonestov, champion of the Christianizing policies of Elminsky, who himself was a Rustam in the matter of Christianizing the Muslims of Inner Russia, and the teacher of our own Ostromanov, once wrote, quote, Among the natives, the people most useful, or at any rate the most harm- harmless for us, are those who can speak Russian with some embarrassment and write it with many mistakes, and who are therefore afraid not just of our governors, but of any functionary sitting behind a desk. Now we are earning the right to answer back, not just in Russian, but in the languages of the civilized nations of Europe. If the free men of of the Uzbek nation, and even its unfree young girls, began a revolt against the legacy of Elminsky, then we too can win our right to join the community of peoples without being beaten and humiliated. Chopin was also involved in the quote-unquote liberation of women, although the Jadid definition of women's liberation was different from the Bolshevik definition. The Bolsheviks pushed the unveiling of women and wanted to quote-unquote Europeanify Muslim women. This was partially a result of their own efforts to end gender standards, but it was also a direct assault on Islam. The Jadid supported women's rights, and many unveiled their own wives. Chopin wrote a play about the veil, and his book, Night, is about the cruel fate of a girl forced to marry an official who already had three other wives, and how the justice system fails its people, especially women. He was also against the practice of secluding women, believing it contributed to their lack of education and quote-unquote backwardsness. Like other Jadids, Chopin found it hard to align liberation in the, in the theoretical realm and how it was being implemented in the real world especially when there was this undercurrent of quote-unquote attacking Islam. Many people in the royal arrows felt threatened by this effort, and women who did unveil were frequently murdered. Chopin himself would have several wives, and it seems he struggled with maintaining relationships with women. I think it's also fair to say that he had considerable trauma from the civil wars and the destruction he witnessed, and it most likely affected his relationship with those closest to him. Part 1c, The Fall the Jadids exercised considerable local power in the early 1920s and were in the process of creating their own nationalistic Islamic modern government. The Bolsheviks distrusted this government because it didn't match communist principles. In 1923, they struck fast and hard, forcing Feizullah Zuzev's government to oust four of its members, including Abdullah Fitrat, who was discussed last episode. Fitrat went to exile in Moscow in 1923, in 1924, Chopin traveled to Moscow to study at the Uzbek Drama Studio. At this point, he was still tolerated in Central Asia, and the Soviets weren't yet attacking him outright. By 1927, however, several Russian writers and Central Asian leaders who wanted to establish their pro-communist credentials began attacking Fitchat, Chopin, Kodiri, and many others. One indigenous communist would complain in 1927 that the, quote, Uzbek literary language of today is doubtless Chopin's language. Who is Chopin? Whose poet is he? Chopin is a poet of the nationalist 
patriotic pessimist intellectia. His ideology is the ideology of this group. And that quote is from Abdi Khalid's book, Making Uzbekistan. He was also, quote, an idealist and an individualist, and therefore sees every political and social event not from the side of the masses, but of his own personal point of view. The quote is also from Abdib Khalid's book, Making Uzbekistan. In 1927, some people were still brave enough to, to defend Chopin. An indigenous writer, Oybek, wrote that Chopin was like, quote-unquote, Pushkin, who the young generation loved because of his, quote, simple language, his delicious style, his technique. He was like Pushkin, who, quote, remained Pushkin even after the revolution, because his works created the immortal richness of Russian literature. Quote is from Adib Khalid's book, Making Uzbekistan. As the decade came to a close, Fitchat and Chopin were used as a litmus test for whether someone was truly communist or not. If you defended Chopin, you were lacking in your communist understanding and credentials. If you attacked him, you were saved from Stalin's purge for a time. Pravda Vostoka the Russian language paper of the Central Committee of Communist Party of Uzbekistan published a news article titled, quote, The Bark of the Chang Dods of the Khan of Kokan. It was one of the most vile attacks against Chopin and other members of the Uzbek intelligentsia. The attack was written by L. Registan, the future author of the Soviet National Anthem of 1943. He claimed that Chopin was a, quote, prostitute of the pen, a stoker of chauvinism, whose anti-Soviet words were recited, quote, in chorus by Basmachis taken prisoner and could now be heard all across Uzbekistan in any tea house. Quote is from Adib Khalid's book, Making Uzbekistan. The article went on to attack other writers, including Kodiri and Fitchat, and was the first nail in Chopin's coffin. For his part, Chopin wrote that El Registan's criticism was, quote, an old matter for which I was abused plenty then. Now it's necessary to abuse me for new misdeeds, if there are any. End quote is from Abdi Khalid's book, Made to Uzbekistan. Why attack Chopin, who's only a poet and playwright? What made him so threatening to the Soviet project? The answer may lie in his poem, Autumn, in which he wrote, quote, O you who come from cold places clothed in ice, may that grating voice of yours be lost in the snow. O you who pick the fruits of my garden, may your dark heads be buried in the earth. And the poem is from Abdi Khalid's book, Made to Uzbekistan. Chopin's poems, while simple, were gut-wrenching and easy to understand and read. He was able to capture complex thoughts and translate them into the simplest of imagery and feelings for people to latch onto. Chopin had a visceral reaction to the destruction of the Civil War and channeled it into his writing, and the Bolsheviks knew he wasn't the only one upset about what had happened to the region. While the Basmachis contributed to the death and violence, it was also easy to blame the Russians for bringing the horrors with them, as they had done with their colonial projects. Additionally, Chopin was a Jadid, many of whom made up the current government of the Soviet republics. The reforms he and other, other Jadids fought for not only conflicted with communist reforms, it was another option. Historically, the communists have never tolerated dissent or other governmental options, and so the Jadids had to go. Basically, if it's not communist, doesn't matter if it's helpful to the region, doesn't matter if it makes sense to the region, doesn't matter if it would be acknowledging ancient pains or wounds from the region. If it's not communist, it has to go. Chopin's great, greatest power, though, may have been his own sarcasm. In 1937, he was called before the Writers' Union to answer charges of nationalism leveled against him. And he replied, quote, I have many mistakes, but I will correct them with your help. But what training have you given me in these years? And when they published his book without an explanatory preface, 
he pointed it out, saying, quote, Abuse was required here, for the youth should not be allowed to read Chopin's work without an intermediary. Why did the work of this nationalist appear without a preface? He seemingly didn't take the criticism seriously, and so had the potential to undercut the power of various organizations put in place to keep writers and intellectuals in control. Finally, and most damningly, Chopin was a member of the Old Guard. He was part of a world that could not exist comfortably alongside communism. He thought about government and the world with biases and frameworks of a world that no longer existed. The Bolsheviks didn't care if he could change his way of thinking or even if he wanted to. All that mattered was that he represented an old world and a potential new world that didn't rely on communist principles. That in itself was enough to murder him. Part 1D Arrest and Execution Chopin returned from Moscow in 1927 to stage plays around Uzbekistan but returned to Moscow in 1932, when he could no longer tolerate being the Bolsheviks' favorite punching bag. While in Moscow, he focused on translating European writers into Uzbek. He returned to Central Asia in 1934, when feelings about him seemed to be softening, and wrote his first and only novel, Night. Whether he wrote it to earn the Bolsheviks' good graces, to write a final scathing indictment of communism, or just to play of novel, the novel structure is still up for debate. It is a challenging but beautifully written and engaging book. I like it better than Akhan Pular by Abdullah Qadiri, but don't tell anyone that. It is supposedly the first book in a duology. Christopher Fort writes a great paragraph in his introduction tonight that this missing second book may never have even existed in any written format, but more of a thought in Chopin's head. The book is about the horrors a young woman faces when forced to marry an older man in the 1920s Central Asia. In the novel, he attacks the powerlessness of women in Turkestani society and the old practices of polygamy and forced marriages, but also corrupt local rulers, the ulama, and even the jadids themselves. You can buy Night, translated by Christopher Fort, from any bookstore. The book was hated by the Bolsheviks, and Chopin was arrested on July 13, 1937. He was charged as a nationalist for being part of a secret society known as Mili, Itahad National Union, which we'll cover in our next episode. Instead of denying the fake charges, Chopin quote-unquote confessed, most likely because he was smart enough to understand there was no salvation possible. He was a dead man the moment he was arrested. The NKVD murdered him alongside Fitchat and Kodiri on October 4, 1938. After he was murdered during the Stalinist purges, Chopin's works were never published or discussed until a brave editor attempted to include his poems in an anthology of Uzbek poetry in 1968 and was severely reprehended by the Soviet government. Chopin's work was passed around secretly, but he remained person non grata until the fall of the Soviet Union. He is now being rehabilitated as a hero of Uzbekistan. Part 2. Abdullah Qadiri Abdullah Qadiri was born in Kashtan in 1894 to a family of modest means. He attended a, a Russian native school and worked several odd jobs before publishing his first piece of fiction in 1915. He did not reach critical fame until the 1920s when he became an editor for the satirical magazine Mushtum, which, is, which means the fist. His work with Mushtum was groundbreaking. He took the living language he heard on the street and immortalized it in writing while perfecting satire in Uzbek literature. Part 2a, Attacking the Ulama While he was a brilliant satirist, he could also be quite cruel, and his favorite targets were the ulama, eshons, and bureaucrats. He often depicted the ulama as traditionalists and conservatives who were narrow-minded and unable to understand the world and Islam. Despite this, he was well-versed in Islam. 
He studied at the Bedwabedi Madra in Tashkent. He spoke Arabic, Persian, and Turkic. He even took part in discussions with the ulama while he wrote for Mushtum. An example of his wit can be found in his piece called Shejan Taha Mausoleum. These mausoleums or shrines were an integral part of Central Asian life. The leaders of the Bukharan Soviet tore, tore down the shrines or mausoleums because they thought the ulama and eshans who cared for the shrines took advantage of the faith of the people and the act of paying respects to the dead was quote-unquote backwards. So they tore down the shrines and replaced them with schools. Houdiri's piece memorialized the demolition of the Shejantahar mausoleum. It was a drawing of two devils, Iblis and Azazel, bemoaning the fact that, quote, our house is being destroyed, the customs of our ancestors are being trampled. And the quote and the description of the piece is from Abdi Kali's book, Making Uzbekistan. An accompanying article compared the two demons to two certain ulama who had opposed the destruction. It is almost as scathing as some of Fitchat's works deconstructing Islamic beliefs and traditions. Khodiri was a faithful Muslim who saw no contradiction between being a practicing Muslim and criticizing the ulama. During one of his interrogations with the K- NKVD, he said, quote, I'm a reformist, a proponent of renewal. In Islam, I only recognize faith in God, the munificent, as the highest reality. As for the other innovations, most of them I consider to be the work of the Muslim clerics. And quote is from Adib Khalid's book, Making Uzbekistan. Part 2b, Success as a Novelist. In 1925, he published Atran Kunlar, his first novel and the first prose novel ever written in the Uzbek language. It is about Adabek and the love of his life, Kamush. They marry, but Adabek's mother hates Kamush and forces Adabek to marry a second wife, Zanab. Things go terribly and people die. It sold 10,000 copies and his second novel, also historical fiction, Scorpion in the Altar, was published in 1928 and sold 7,000 copies. In 1932, Kodiri was admitted to the Uzbekistan Writers' Union and two years later was actually elected as one of, the, one of its delegates to the first Congress of the All-Union Organization, where he and Sadruddin Ani met Matsim Gorky and a picture was taken of the trio. Despite finding success in the literary world, Kodiri's satire got him in trouble with the Bolshevik authorities, and he was arrested in 1926, making fun of Akmal Ikramov at Hamiyas Uzbek vying with Fezula Zhojev for the leadership over the Bukharan Soviet Republic, and we'll get into all of that in our upcoming episode. The Soviets had grown wary of Mushtum, and this was an excuse to get rid of its editor. Kodiri was thrown in jail for six months before being released this time, and was banned from writing for the press. Instead, he, ma- he made a living writing original work and translating. He also found odd jobs such as writing the letter P in the first major Russian Uzbek dictionary in 1934, translated a collection of anti-religious essays, and worked on a film strip based on Chekhov's Cherry Orchard. Part 1C, Arrest and Execution Fezula Zhojev commissioned Kodiri to write about the Uzbek peasantry, which would be published as a serialized piece called Obid Ketman. This work was vilified for being anti-Soviet, and Khodiri was accused of being anti-social and apolitical. He, like Chopin and Fitzrat, became the favorite punching bags of anyone trying to prove their communist credentials. He watched as Fitzrat was arrested in July 1937. 
Chopin was arrested on July 13, 1937, and Kodiri himself was finally arrested on, on December 31st, 1937. Kodiri was accused of being a member of a counter-revolutionary organization that collaborated with Trotskyites of carrying out anti-Soviet work in the press and having direct relations with Zhozhev and Ikramov. They were both dead at the time of Kodiri's arrest, but also that charge is a little ridiculous because if you work in government in what is now Uzbekistan, or if you were part of any writing or cultural sphere, you were going to have relations with Zhozhev, at the very least. Kodiri admitted to being a nationalist until 1932, and then he changed his ways. Um, and according to his son, when Kodiri was given his quote-unquote confession to sign, and it would serve as his death warrant, he wrote, quote, This resolution was announced to me. I read it. I do not agree to the charges contained in it and do not accept them. And the quote is from Abdi Khalid's book, Making Uzbekistan. He, along with Fitchat and Chopin, were murdered on, on October 4th, 1938. Chopin and Kodiri, Kodiri in particular, are having a mass revival right now. Um, I once listened to Mark Rees talk about his translation of book of Akhan Pular from Uzbek to English, and he was talking about how for a lot of people in Uzbekistan, this story, this you know, the novel is still very important to them, and it's like a core part of their literary canon. And I think reading Abdi Khalib's book, Chopin's poetry is, is similar. Which I think explains why the Soviets were so keen on destroying them. Because I think it's a little, I think in some ways it's a little weird they were just writers, and Chopin worked with Fitchat to recreate the Uzbek language, but I think it's a little hard to understand why did they target these these men as severely as they did, and why did they get the ultimate punishment, right? Why were they executed? It really comes down to the fact that they represented, they were the bridge between this new communist state that was being created and the old world. Because the communists like to destroy anything that reconnects to the old world and reconnects to nationalism and reconnects to any sort of government that isn't communist made or communist approved. And Chopin and Kodiri and Fitchrat, that, that was their number one goal, was to reform the old world. They didn't want to get rid of it. There were aspects of it that they still supported. Islam was still very important for all of them in, different, you know, in varying degrees. And the Bolsheviks, this, they come in and they don't understand local culture. They don't understand the local history. They don't want to. They have no interest in that. And so Chopin and Kodiri are a threat because they are, they are immortalizing this past. And they are immortalizing this history. And they are working with Fitchat and Zhozhev and others to create a Turkic identity that's very nationalist in nature. And it kind of reminds me of this, I've read this kind of, um, I've read the sentiment in many places where Western European can talk about how we don't need nations anymore and we don't need, but there are a lot of people around the world who haven't even had a nation, right? Or they've only had a nation for 20 years because of colonization. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing with the Jadids and the local leaders of Bukhara and eventually becomes Uzbekistan and the Bolsheviks at this time 
the local people are trying to recapture what was taken from them. And the Bolsheviks are just very intent on continuing to take it from them. And then if they do reintroduce it, it's going to be through a communist framing. So that's why they're a threat. Intellectually, they are a threat. Because intellectually, they're providing this other option and this other way of understanding your own place in the world. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can listen to our full catalog on Spotify, iTunes, and our website, www.samswarroom.com. Please join our Patreon to support our research and future projects. Until next time, wash your hands, practice social distancing, and stay safe.